Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to come before your throne, to come before your word, knowing that you speak to us, that you've spoken powerfully to us through your word, showing us your way of salvation in Jesus. Our Lord, as we come to this passage in Nehemiah, Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, understanding by your spirit. Lord, show us Christ, show us your goodness, show us your mercy, show us your work, and Lord, show us how we are to live for you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, over the last few weeks, uh, the Australian women's soccer team, the Matildas, have taken the country by storm. Uh, During the FIFA Women's World Cup held here in Australia, uh, we punched away above our own weight. Uh, We beat France in the quarterfinals, uh, making it to the final four. Uh, That's our best ever finish in the Women's World Cup, and in fact, in any soccer football World Cup. And there was a huge celebration for their efforts. Uh, A lot of people in Australia came out to cheer them on. Uh, They did parades in Sydney, in Brisbane. They even got Nikki Webster out to sing her favourite song, Strawberry Kisses. Uh, Anastasia even promised them a statue at Suncorp Stadium alongside all the rugby greats. But within the celebration and the glory... I think there's a strong feeling of tension. Because while it was a great finish for the Miltildas, it wasn't really the fairy tale ending that they wanted. You see, they lost the semi-finals to England. They lost the bronze medal game to Sweden. If you did watch those games, there were missed chances, missed opportunities, there was brain lapses in key moments of the game. And whatever your view on these things are, there's matters boiling on in the background like pay, funding, sponsorship, and other things going on. You see, this tension, we celebrate their great efforts, but it's not really the ending that anyone wanted. And as we get to today's chapters, I think there's a similar feeling of tension here too. Just to summarize the story so far, Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears about the ruins of Jerusalem and its walls. Uh, He gets approval from the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls. Uh, Then he heads to Jerusalem. He gets the work started. Uh, We've seen opposition from outside and inside, chapter 4 and 5. And like any good story, now we're just waiting for the climax, the end. The celebration of the wall finally being built and completed. But as we get there today, there is a bit of celebration, but I think it's clouded with tension. Because as we look closer, we'll see that it's not that glorious celebration, it's not a fairy tale ending, and there's still the same issues bubbling along in the background that we saw before. We're going through two chapters today. Chapter 7, in particular, has 73 verses. Uh, I don't think it's been preached on a lot from what I've seen. Uh, It's actually the same list that's found in Ezra chapter 2 of numbers and names. Uh, Today, we're going through a total of 92 verses. 
So our aim this morning isn't to analyze each verse and each number. Uh, We want to understand the general tone and direction of these two chapters, uh, to see how it fits into Nehemiah, how it fits into God's Word as a whole, and see what it means for us today. And we're going to start this morning in the middle of the section, this great moment of completion. So have a look, your Bible's open at chapter 6, verse 15. It says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You see, this is the moment the last few chapters have been building toward, and it's a great achievement, isn't it? 52 days, think about it. Four kilometers of defensive walls built by this feeble, ragtag Jewish remnant amidst opposition from outside and in. And this signaled God's city, God's people, and God's nation protected, hemmed in once again, set apart from the other nations once again. Even their surrounding enemies, the ones who were spreading fear, now they're the ones that were fearful and afraid. Remember all the jokes from chapter 4, questioning the capacity, the competence, the conviction of God's people. They've been turned around on their heads because the wall has been finished. And it was obvious this weak and feeble remnant people could have only achieved this with the help of Yahweh, the one true God. You see, it's a point in Nehemiah of celebration, a climax. But as we look around this section, I think we notice the tension. Because if you look around, there's not much celebration at all. If anything, there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of disunity, disappointment and opposition And I've broken the rest of today's passage to four places of tension, four places of inglorious disappointment. And the first is in chapter 6, verse 1 to 9. Verse 1 starts, Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecapharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Well, if you thought the opposition had finished, well, surprise, surprise, nothing's changed. Opposition from outside enemies continue. You even see it in the name, the plain of Ono. Ono. It continues. (laughs) This happens just before the wall is completed. And these three enemies of God's people, they sense that this is their last chance to disrupt the wall rebuilding. So they come up with this plan. 
They want to lure Nehemiah out. They want to bring him to this place, Ono, uh, to the outskirts of Judah, right to the border near Samaria, and they want to ambush him. And if you follow on in the next verses, Nehemiah, he smells out the scheme. In verse 3, he rejects the offer. He knows the importance of God's great work that he's doing. And Sanballat invites Nehemiah out four more times, rejected each time. So in verse 5, Sanballat, he spreads this rumor to frighten Nehemiah to come out and meet him. But still, Nehemiah is focused and composed. He prays to God to strengthen his hands. You see, even as the wall gets completed, nothing's changed from the last two chapters. Opposition from outside continues. And opposition from inside continues too. Have a look at verse 10. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Thus close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. We're introduced to this guy, this prophet named Shemaiah. We don't know anything else about him except what we find here. And, Nehemiah, and he gets Nehemiah's attention. He tries to scare Nehemiah into doing something he's not supposed to do, to go into the temple to hide. And remember, Nehemiah, he's not a priest. Only priests have access to the temple. And by doing what this prophet said, Nehemiah would have lost honor with the people. Could have been even worse. He could have been struck with disease or even death. King Uzziah trespassed the temple and he was struck immediately with leprosy. But Nehemiah again catches on fast in verse 11. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Again, as the wall gets completed, nothing's changed. Opposition from within continues. Well, now you might be thinking, well, that was all before the wall is completed. Now we pass verse 15 and 16, and the mood changes right. The wall's complete. Now the people are happy and celebrations happen. But we keep going to verse 17 and realize that the tension keeps ongoing. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me 
afraid. You see, right after this climactic moment, we sink again to the pits of sin and disunity. Tobiah, one of the surrounding enemies to Jerusalem, he actually had family connections with many of the nobles in Jerusalem, links through marriage, through trading contracts, resulting in these oath agreements to Tobiah. And whether it was willingly or by coercion and force, Tobiah, he used these links, and he used them to breed disunity, to leak out information, to influence people against Nehemiah and the cause of God's people. If you remember in chapter 5, we saw disunity, the well-off against the poor, brother exploiting brother. We thought all that was done and dusted. Well, that disunity continues here. The nobles, the well-off again, probably the ones in chapter 3 who refused to work on the wall, probably the same ones in chapter 5 who ripped off their fellow Jews, here they side with Tobiah. They work against Nehemiah, breeding disunity and division in God's people. So far we've seen opposition continue from outside, from inside, We've seen disunity continue. All that progress from chapter 4 and 5 is undone as the wall is completed. And guess what? The shame and the ruin of the people from chapter 1, we thought this wall completion would undo all that shame. But as we get to chapter 7, we see that the shame continues too. If you can remember the time when we were coming out of COVID lockdowns about two years ago, uh, we were greeted with things like quarter-filled churches, uh, empty stadiums, uh, deserted shopping centres. I think there's a photo of that somewhere. Uh, I remember preaching at uh, Sunnybank District Baptist Church. Uh, The morning service usually has 300 people, full church hall. Uh, But on that particular day I went to preach, I counted maybe 40, 50 people and a whole myriad of empty seats and empty rows. It was disappointing. It was sad. It was inglorious. It was a shame. And I think that's how we're supposed to feel as we get to this list in chapter 7. If you have your Bibles there, it begins with Nehemiah making some arrangements, new leaders of the city, new guarding strategies, and it ends with this sad comment in verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You see, the city was still in shame. It was a sad, inglorious sight. Few people, few houses. And as we keep going, this long list, 68 verses here, emphasizes this fact number after number, verse after verse. Verse 5 introduces it. 
Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. You see, this is a key moment in the history of God's people, a remnant of God's people returning into God's city in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he lists out a roll call of everyone who returned from exile of this remnant and what it looked like, who was there. And he does this to say, here's the total number of the people of God here. Here are the ones who re-entered God's city. Here are the ones who are part of this new beginning for Jerusalem and Judah now that the walls have been rebuilt. And in it we see names and numbers of people, verse 7, of families, verse 8 to 38, temple servants, verse 39 to 60, even those who Ancestry.com couldn't track properly, verse 61 to 65, with the summary statement in chapter 7, verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. You see, this is a total community of God's people at the time, 42,360. This number is probably just the number of adult men that were counted. And it sounds impressive, 42,000. But if you look back in the Old Testament, in the time of David, at 2 Samuel 24 verse 9, records 800,000 fighting men in all of Israel, 500,000 alone in the tribe of Judah. When Judah was defeated in 597 BC, it's estimated that there were between 100 and 200,000 people populating Judah. So the number of 42,360, it would have been lousy, disappointing, inglorious, sad, shameful. It would have been a demoralizing sight. It's like going to a church building that's just a quarter or a tenth filled. It's like going to Suncorp Stadium when it's a quarter or a tenth filled. You see, while the wall is finished, it's not the happy ending we expect. Not much has changed because chapter 7 highlights verse after verse, number after number, that the shame of the people continues. Nothing's changed. Well, we've covered these two chapters today uh, fairly quickly. Uh, now we're going to think about what all of this means for us today. And I think there's three things to highlight coming out of today's passage. And the first is this. Look forward, look to the glorious completion of God's work. You see, this morning we've seen this tension 
of this inglorious completion here. The wall is complete. It's fantastic for this ragtag people, four Ks of walls in 52 days. But what we find here is that the trouble continues. Opposition continues from outside and inside. The people are divided, they're small and still in shame. And if we think about the wall as a symbol of God's city being reestablished, God's people being set apart, made holy and clean from the world, what we find in these two chapters is that the people aren't holy. Sin still lurks. Division and disunity is still there. And the people aren't thriving. They're still shamed. They're not a great people or a great nation. And there's this tension. The wall is fantastic. But the wall isn't the answer. God's work is not yet complete. People are still waiting for something more, something better, something greater, something perfect, complete, a glorious fulfillment of God's good promises. It's a tension of inglorious completion that we find all through the Old Testament. If you remember the Exodus from Egypt, Right after you see the people grumbling, the giving of the commands on Sinai, right after we see the golden calf, David is God's king, then we read of his sin with Bathsheba, Solomon making great things with God's nation, extending it, and then we read of his great sins. And here with the wall completion, God's people back in God's city, a remnant returning, Yet opposition and shame remains. You see, the tension of inglorious completion pushes us to look forward, to look ahead, to look to the glorious completion that we find in Jesus. You see, in Jesus we find God's work complete once for all. God's promises finding their full completion in Jesus. God's kingdom being established in all its fullness, not by a wall, but in Jesus. God's new covenant brought into reality, not by a wall, but in Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, Jesus says himself that this tension we find in Nehemiah 6 and 7, the war completion that doesn't really truly satisfy God's people, it ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Because you see, there is a glorious completion in the work of Jesus. He died once for all, dealing with sin and death forever. He rose victorious securing new life 
forever. His saving work does much more than a wall. It actually creates one new people in Jesus. It actually allows God's people to be set apart and holy. It actually brings in the new covenant, raising dead bones to life, writing the law on our hearts, and having God dwell in us by his spirit. You see, the glorious completion of God's work, it's not in Nehemiah, it's not in Moses, it's not in David or Solomon, it's in Jesus, his perfect life, his saving work on the cross, his victorious rule and reign today. And we today can benefit from this by trusting in Jesus, by being united to Jesus, by living for Jesus as Lord and Savior. Look to the glorious completion of God's work. It's none other than Jesus Christ. Now we come to our second point. It's just a small passing point. Uh, Alistair Begg, pastor and author, uh, I remember a talk of his, and he talks about the delights and the dangers of church ministry. And Alistair, he's talking about people in the church uh, writing him letters of criticism, uh, writing him letters accusing him of things that are unfounded, that would say, you think this, you think that, you said this, you're trying that, you're doing this. And Alistair would reply to these letters. I really wanted to copy his practice. And he would say, Dear Anne, Nehemiah 6, verse 8, your pastor and friend, Alistair. Nehemiah 6, 8 says, Then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Dear Anne, Nehemiah 6, 8, your pastor and friend, Alistair. You see, Nehemiah 6 gives us a picture of distractions, trying to take Nehemiah away from God's work. Distractions, trying to take the people away from God's work. Distractions from outside, inside, causing division, disunity, spreading fear. Those from outside, we're not really surprised about that. Kind of makes sense. There are people opposed to God and his work. But those from inside, causing division from within, they're the silent and sinister distractions that we often don't expect, and they shock us all the more. So how do we combat distractions? I think two verses speak to us the most here. Chapter 6, verse 3 says, And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Chapter 6, verse 9. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands." Beware of distractions. How do we combat distractions? 
to the work of God. Three things. First is prayerfully trust the Lord. This is what Nehemiah did. He looks to God and asks God to strengthen his hands. We're to keep our eyes on him, to trust him, to fear him, to seek strength from him. Second, to persist in the work of the Lord. You see, Nehemiah was convinced that God's work is a great work. He's single-minded on God's business, and we need to persist in the work of serving Jesus, convinced that serving Jesus, serving his kingdom and his cause is the great work, single-mindedly serving him. The third, protect yourself from being a distraction. While this isn't in today's passage, I think part of distractions in the church is that sometimes we can become the distraction but we don't even know that we're doing it. It's so easy to be caught up on something that's small, trivial, that's about preference and not a core issue, that's even non-factual. And in our being caught up with this, we become, I become, you become a distraction unwittingly. And we divide, we make people afraid. We hurt, we stumble, and we're all prone to being distractions. New believers, long-time believers, men, women, leaders, members, new to the church, and long-time in the church. And we've all heard of matters distracting the church from kingdom work whether it be personal preferences, rumors and gossip, unfounded accusations, personalities, pride and ego, stubbornness, cliques. Yes, churches can divide over core theological issues, but churches divide and people get angry about things like carpet or tiles the color of the wall, the church logo, building projects, church directories, bulletins, believe it or not, the absence of a word in clause 10.3.5, not in the constitution, not in the policy, but in some procedure, seating arrangements. I know this because I've personally seen all of these distract people from kingdom work in church life. So it's worth reflecting. Am I the distraction? Am I caught up and breeding division on something that's nothing? Am I doing it without even knowing about it? Will I bring this to God Will I seek forgiveness from my brothers and sisters in Christ? Beware of distractions. Prayerfully trust the Lord. Persist in the work of the Lord. And protect yourself from being a distraction yourself. 
Well, as we get to our final point, uh, the list we get in chapter 7, it's not all about disappointment. It teaches us that God cares about people. And God does care about numbers. Because while the people are small, God promises in his word to grow and bless his people as more bow their knee to Jesus as king. God's people are a small, hope-filled people in Nehemiah. The Jews, God's chosen people. God's people today. Those who are found trusting in Jesus. It still feels small, doesn't it? 3% in Australia of actively, uh, actively professing Christians. Former Christian nations, we see a moving towards secularism and atheism. But remember Jesus' illustrations of the kingdom of God. He says in his Gospels, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds growing into the biggest and widest of trees. You see, while God's people might feel small today, know that God is growing his hope-filled people. It's hard to find solid stats, but in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Christianity is booming and buzzing. People are trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior, even in Australia. Even in Australia, the stats show that evangelical Protestant Christianity, that's Bible-reading, Jesus-centered Christianity, it's actually growing in Australia today. Know that God is growing his hope-filled people. And this picture in Nehemiah of God's small, hope-filled people will one day be contrasted by God's great multitude of hope-filled people. You see, that's the picture we get in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And on that day, it won't be a shamed and disappointment of a people. It will be a great multitude that we can't even number celebrating giving praise to King Jesus. So as we think of where God's small, hope-filled people is heading, let me encourage you this morning to look forward to God's hope-filled people, a great multitude united in celebration, worshipping King Jesus on the last day. And if you're here this morning and you haven't responded to Jesus yet, let me invite you to be part of God's hope-filled people. Let me challenge you by asking you, do you want to be part of God's hope-filled people? Will your name be on that list? Will you be there in that great multitude on that last day? You see, you can be part of God's hope-filled people. 
and it's by trusting in God's glorious completion, trusting in Jesus as God's promised one, your Lord and Saviour. Well, as we finish our time in God's Word today, let the tension we find in Nehemiah 6 and 7, that tension of an inglorious completion, let that push us toward the glorious completion of all of God's promises coming together in the finished work of salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father God, as we reflect on the chapters in Nehemiah today, we're reminded afresh that your holy word pushes us toward your son, Jesus Christ, as your ultimate and perfect work of salvation. That on the cross, Jesus defeated all your enemies and all opposition once for all. That on the cross, Jesus establishes a new people in his blood. And that Jesus brings in your kingdom that will keep on growing until that day when we are all worshipping Jesus in glory. Father God calls us to make much of your son, Jesus, today. Calls us to engage ourselves in that great work of living for Jesus and serving him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.